something had changed. Uh, Verse 23, we hear that during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. The Israelites had suffered as slaves in Egypt for a long time. Uh, by some counts, for as many as four centuries, 400 years. Certainly, individuals had cried out before this time. Many must have yelled and groaned and wept and raged against the uh, oppression that was being inflicted on them. And yet, this is the first time in the story, as it's been told so far, the story of their oppression, that we hear of them crying out as a whole people. The U.S. theologian Walter Brueggemann is particularly uh, adept at noting the newness of this moment. He writes, We're told that when Pharaoh, the administrator of the exploitive system, died, everything became unglued. The remarkable turn in the narrative in chapter 2, verse 23, which we just read, is that the slaves sounded their pain out loud. They groaned and cried out. They broke the silence of the regime. Keeping the oppressed silent, at least publicly, is vital to the powerful to maintain control. Brueggemann continues, The slaves suffered mightily, but we may believe that they did so previously in a silence imposed by a vicious regime. Such a regime does not mind at all if people suffer. It is simply the cost of doing business, the necessity of the production schedule. It fears only that such pain will become public. Sounded and heard in the public domain, it fears pain brought to speech because such uttered pain becomes dangerous to the order. Pain brought to voice in public speech so that it is heard out loud promptly rearranges all power, all power realities that are thought to be settled. The Israelites had suffered for centuries, but something changed And they cried out with one voice in a way that they hadn't before. What changed exactly, we don't know. John Calvin, I think, makes a a good guess here. He writes, we know that the hope of a happier time is soothing to our woes. And the hope that someone more kind would succeed the dead tyrant, the dead pharaoh, in some measure, softened the misery of the afflicted people. But when the change of kings in no wise lightened their oppression, their sorrow was increased and forced them to cry out more loudly than before. It is not that they began then first to grieve and lament, but because they had become more alive to their woes and their duration made them to be felt more acutely. Something had changed for the Israelites. Something changed for God in our story as well. 
We hear in verse 23 that the Israelites groaned in their slavery, cried out, and that the cry went up to God. And then continuing in 24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first time I read that, when God, that God remembered the covenant, I was like, what? Had he forgotten? I mean, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, but this is one of those times when there's crucial nuance that is lost in translation. Commentators are pretty united in their thought that the Hebrew word used here has more of a sense that God renewed God's activity for the covenant rather than that the covenant returned to God's awareness. Douglas Stewart, another commentator, puts it this way. In other words, to say God remembered the covenant is to say God decided to honor the terms of the covenant at this time. Thus, the idiom never implies that anything was, in fact, forgotten or pushed into the back of God's mind. Again, I think it is completely reasonable to wonder why God waited until this moment to act. But for whatever reason God hadn't acted before, the more important news for us is that God does act now. Again, God heard their cry, remembered the covenant, and then verse 25, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. More literally, and we'll come back to this, God saw and God knew. Walter Brueggemann writes, the cry changes, Yahweh. It is astonishing that for two full chapters at the beginning of the book of Exodus, chapters filled with abuse and violence, Yahweh has not yet made a narrative appearance. The cry changes that. The cry is not addressed to Yahweh or to anyone else. It is a cry addressed to no one and to anyone who would listen. But it rose up to God. The cry not addressed to Yahweh arrived there anyway. It arrived there because Yahweh, the God of the narrative, is like a magnet for the cries of the abused. Brueggemann then sees in, in this story a revelation of the very nature of God, of who God is. He writes, the Bible that follows from this point on, verse 23, that follows from this cry is, among other things, a collage of episodes in which the cry sounds and a response is evoked. Indeed, the cry becomes the normal gesture of Israel in need. He quotes Psalm 34. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. He quotes from Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and God delivered them from their distress. You'll notice in our uh, call to worship this morning that we similarly had uh, that God sees the trouble of the afflicted. You consider the grief and take it in hand. Um, God hears the desire of the afflicted and you encourage them. Brueggemann also points out how um, the blind beggar Bartimaeus in one of the gospel stories is yelling out to Jesus and Jesus' disciples are trying to quiet him. Shh, 
don't bother him. And, and so then he cries out even louder. And Jesus responds and heals him. And Brueggemann closes with this part that in Luke 18, Jesus even counsels his disciples to pray like the widow who is relentless in insisting upon justice and so cries out to the judge incessantly. Over and over throughout the scriptures, we witness God respond to cries heard. In our story this morning, we also witness that God sees what is happening to the oppressed, to the oppressed Israelites. Again, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned with them. The language here is, is significant. To look on in this way means to, to look and observe with a purpose, with intent. And because God looked with a purpose and heard their cries, God understood their suffering. Again, the NIV is a little weak here, I think, in terms of uh, they translate it, and God was concerned about them. But that makes it sound a little bit like politicians we hear these days saying, our thoughts and prayers are with you after another mass shooting. The literal translation, God knew. God looked and God knew means that God knew what was being inflicted upon the enslaved people and responded as if it was happening to God. Terence Freetheim, another uh, commentator, captures the essence of God's actions here. God saw, we hear. It is to begin to move toward the other with kindness or sympathy. God knew. It is to share an experience with another that the others, so, to so share in that experience that the other's experience can be called one's own. God knows their suffering. These verbs show that God has a new point of view with respect to the situation. Israel is to be the object of God's special care. This action is grounded in God's prior relationship with the ancestors of this people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This brief narrative ends by putting a question in the reader's mind, what will God do? What will happen now? And as I was saying earlier, the story of Exodus, as we continue in it, we will witness how God leads the Israelites out of this bondage. And that story then becomes foundational for all God's people. From this point on, it becomes a story of hope. Gerald Jensen writes, where oppression and suffering threaten to snuff out hope, it is because people feel their cry gains no hearing, finds no room in the ears and the hearts of those around them. It is the testimony of scripture, however, that though no one else may respond or provide the room by hearing, God does. But there is, one other person in this story who does give room in their lives to share in the suffering of the Israelites, Moses, the beginning of this. One day, many years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He left the bubble of his privileged life and he went out among the people being oppressed. 
And we read that he saw what was happening to them. Moses saw in the same way that God saw. Like God, Moses also identified with these people being oppressed. Uh, Terence Freedheim again. Moses' action anticipates uh, and foreshadows God's action. Moses sees Israel's oppression. This language is used of God in five places in Exodus in the first five chapters. Moses is no disinterested observer, and having seen, as God will see, Israel's oppression, Moses takes the initiative to do what he can about it. In one sense, Moses does that because Moses recognizes in the Israelites his own ethnic heritage and connection with them. In verse 11, the NIV has that uh, he went out uh, among his own people. It's literally, he went went out among his brothers. But Moses also steps up later in a situation that doesn't relate to him in any way. In verses 16 and 17, there's that bit about how um, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They go to uh, water and fill the troughs for their father's flock, and some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Here again, uh, Terence Freedheim. Moses' sense of justice transcends boundaries of nationality, gender, and kinship. He's no different to evil by whomever it is perpetrated or whoever the victim might be. He demonstrates a concern for life, especially in the life of the weaker members of the society and and an intolerance for abuse exercised by the strong. In this characteristic, Moses displays the way of God for all. God pays attention to those who are suffering and acts to deliver them. As God's people, our challenge is to do the same. Historically, it has been when people in power, those with privilege, have truly seen and heard those being oppressed or ignored that change for the better then comes around. Many people who lived through the civil rights era of the 60s say that it wasn't until television started broadcasting the scenes of black people being attacked by police dogs and being mowed down with fire hoses that white people in this country really then responded. I think part of the reason that the youngest generation of voters now in our country are highly politically active and demanding of justice is because they've seen the life of George Floyd suffocated. They've seen the life of so many others abused by representatives of state power and then millions of people filling the streets demanding justice. It's because they have heard those who are LGBTQIA share 
their pain and suffering both in person and through social media. I mean, one of the benefits that we have this day and age is the numerous platforms available for oppressed and ignored peoples to share their cries of suffering. And yet, I know for myself that I can't wait for the voices, the images, and the people themselves to come to me, to reach me. Like Moses, I need to leave my place of privilege and isolation. I need to actively look and see how people are living and struggling and dying. I need to listen to their voices and hear their stories of suffering and survival. I need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to those to whom God is paying attention. I know it is hard for all sorts of different reasons, but our story this morning reminds us that it is our heritage as God's people to do this. Writing specifically about Moses intervening with the two Israelites when they were fighting, John Calvin makes a larger point. He writes, Moses does not assume, the, as before, the character of a judge, but performs a duty which the law of charity demands of everyone, addressing the men who fought together as a peacemaker. This is not peculiar to Moses, but the common duty to all believers. When the innocent are harshly treated to take their part and as far as possible to interpose, lest the stronger should prevail. It can scarcely be done without exasperating those who are disposed to evil, but nothing ought to allow us to be silent while justice is violated. For in this case, silence is a kind of consent. How often have we heard that these days from those who are saying, pay attention. There are many in our society crying out in their suffering. The key for us is to pay attention, to look and to listen and to know. And the good news for us and for all people is that God does pay attention. God hears and sees and enters into that suffering in order to put it to an end. Thanks be to God.